Church History Matters, episode 26. you brothers and sisters welcome to another episode of church history matters my name is joseph knowles and i'm ruben rosales and we will be joined by a special guest in uh, just a couple minutes here um a returning guest so that narrows down the possibilities <laughs> um but we look forward to, to talking with him shortly uh before we do that we have this week in church history And we will be planning to release this episode on Wednesday, June 16th. And we have had a lot, I think we've, I feel like we've had a lot of uh, this week in church history that were either birth dates or dates that people died uh-huh. and those kind of things. But this one is actually a wedding anniversary. Oh. Yes. So a little bit different. Interesting. And uh, Some nuptials. Yes, yeah, some nuptials. These two people got married on June 16th, 1855. And I actually had to correct the Wikipedia article ah, on that nice. because it's wrong. They had July 16th. <clears throat> but their wedding took place on June 16th, 1855. And the people's names were Carolyn Mumford. That's her maiden name. And the groom was William Booth, who you might recognize as the founder of an important organization. He and his wife founded the Christian Mission 10 years after they were married in 1865. And in 1878, they renamed the organization the Salvation Army. Oh. Yes. So this is Carolyn and William Booth, founders of the Salvation Army, married on June 16th, 1855. So that was this week in church history. And which one of their sons murdered the president? (laughs) (laughs) That's Booth with an E on the ah, end. Okay. So, Alrighty. So different so booth. The Salvation Army. As some folks, actually, I only ever heard of one person that says it, the Salval. I've never heard that before. I haven't either. And this person was like, no, that's what they call it. My mom used to work there. And I'm like, okay, bro, whatever you say. <laughs> like, okay. Salvation Army. That's pretty cool. Yeah. So that's their wedding anniversary. Congratulations to them. So if they were, what was it, 1855? Goodness gracious. How long ago was that? I think it's, it's 166 years, 166 years ago. Yeah. Wow. Yep. She died, I believe, in 1890. He lived on until 1912. They had eight children. That survived? Yes. They wow. had eight children. Um, the youngest uh, ended up being, I think, uh, in India and worked in some capacity in missions there. I'm not sure. I don't remember off the top of my head whether it was with the Salvation Army. But basically, pretty much all of their, or several of their children went into that. Cool. Their oldest son became the second general of the Salvation Army because that's, that's, that's who the head is. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, I guess it was hereditary title. Sure. Yes. Like the colonel that made the decision. <laughs> Something right. like that. All right. <clears throat> well, let us now introduce our guest. Pastor Ryan Davidson. It's always a pleasure to get to talk to you outside of... Uh, hearing you on Lord's Day, and we wanted to talk to you about a couple of things, um, but chiefly something that you're very familiar with and did a lot of doctoral study work on in early church history. Yeah, and um, this might be a little bit different from some of our other interview shows where um, we're not going to dive too deeply 
into a particular topic, but try to give an overview of maybe um, a handful of things that were ideas we had floating around and that uh, we know a guy who knows some stuff. We had a little recording snafu, but I think Ruben had the, the first topic he was going to bring up. Um, well, I think we'll, we'll, we'll put that question in the bag. We'll go ahead and just <laughs> move right along. Um, but one of the reasons why I wanted to have this discussion with you is because uh, when it comes to church history, one of the earliest combatants I had, I guess, to say to say it in a pretty rough way, mm-hmm. was from dis- was dispensationalism, um, which obviously was rearing space around the 1800s. And for me, it was really easy because to me, I would say, well, that's just 200 years ago. Um, I don't really think we should take it that seriously. It's a very modern uh, type of thing. But then their retort could easily be reformed theology only really started 200 years before that or 300 years before that. So that was why we kind of wanted, that's what gave us the idea of having this conversation to be able to talk to you about where did we see anything with reformed history, reformed church history in the early parts of the church. And I think there were two specific areas that you had in mind over those. The the things that I wanted to ask about were a couple of, um, and correct me if I'm wrong on the terminology, but I, I think they would be considered pseudepigraphal works. Is that, a, maybe maybe that's the wrong term, or maybe because you're the early church guy, you could define that for us and maybe say what that's a little bit about for those who might not be familiar. Uh, well, first of all, let me say thanks for having me on, guys. It's good to be back with you guys and um talking about these things i mean so a couple couple of questions there that you guys asked let me jump into rubens first um i mean so all three of us attend the same church our church is a confessionally reformed church and we would argue that while the reformation and its doctrines did occur in the 15 and 1600s our argument would be that it was essentially a revival or rebirth of historic Christianity and practice. And so, Ruben, to your thought, the dispensationalist who says that maybe, you know, covenant theology or, you know, reformed theology is only a few hundred years old. I mean, obviously, it's a little bit of an anemic argument because, you know, you see these kinds of arguments, just broadly speaking, like reformed kinds of thinking going back into uh, the medieval period and even in the early church period. So, you know, dispensationalism is not the topic of our conversation, but uh, it's, it is very different from that. And we would say that the Reformation is a recovery of certain crucial, um, you know, uh, doctrines which weren't invented during that period. Right. And yeah, so obviously it's, we, we have brothers and sisters in Christ who are, dispensational and and hold to that systematic theology uh so yeah this is not a a attack against them it was just that was one of the earliest encounters that i had and something someone also had a question about um and that led us to joseph's question about Mm -hmm. the 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 epistles or what was it well and i guess we'll let ryan speak to that a little bit more but um one i guess one of the distinctives of Reformation theology, or one of the things that seems to have grown out of that was the the idea of covenant. But then you start talking to people about covenant theology, and that 
you know, sometimes gets the criticism of, well, that's replacement theology, right? Well, that, um, but then, well, that's kind of, that's kind of very recent, but what we were wondering is whether, are there at least any seeds of that? Specific areas where you see that flourishing or not flourishing, but signs of that in the early church. Yeah. Even if it's not, I mean, it's not a full blown uh, covenant theology. Right. But is there, is there something there that we can say, well, so-and-so back here, you know, in the one or two centuries after Christ, are there things that we can say, well, here's where it kind of began, even if it was in a very uh, rudimentary form still? Yeah. I mean, you know, for instance, one of the dynamics of kind of classical reform theology is the discussion of covenants. What you see covenants appearing in early writings uh, that come right after the writings of the apostles. So, for instance, the New Testament canon, you know, written by Peter, Paul, etc. Um, there is another group of of writings that, while not scriptural, not canonical, would help us to understand Christianity a little bit more. And one of those would be the Epistle of Barnabas. And the Epistle of Barnabas is uh, Michael Holmes and his work. Uh, his his uh, translation of them says, quote, that they are one of the earliest contributions outside the New Testament to the discussions that have confronted the followers of Jesus since uh, the earliest days of his ministry. And while it was written by an anonymous Christian, uh, it had to be written sometime between about 70 A.D. and the rebuilding uh, of the city. Uh, by Hadrian. So it's it's early. And while I won't get into all that, there are references in the Epistle of Barnabas to God's covenant. You can mm. see that in um, chapter 4, uh, paragraph 8, 6, paragraph 19, 13, paragraph 6, 14, paragraph 4. Let me give you one example. Talking about the Mosaic covenant, this is what the Epistle of Barnabas says in 4.24. Quote, and their covenant, meaning the Mosaic covenant or the covenant of the Jews, and their covenant was broken in pieces that the covenant of the beloved Jesus might be sealed unto our hearts in the hope which springeth from faith in him. Well, I don't want to make too much of that. I don't want to try to say, oh, he's trying to argue for a Baptist covenant theology or Presbyterianism or anything like that. You see a discussion of the Bible in terms of covenant within the first 100 to 200 years of, of Christian writings, right? So just that's just one example uh, in the Epistle of Barnabas where a comparison of covenants is used and the new covenant is pointed to uh, as it relates to the Gentiles. So just for someone that maybe doesn't have a full understanding of what is a covenant versus and why does it matter? Um, for example, anyone that picks up their Bible and they're just in a church and i've never heard the word covenant i never really heard the word covenant too much when i first became a christian um so what does that mean and why is that important yeah good question so if you read the bible the bible uh is unfolding in a series of covenants adam and eve are placed in the garden they are made good without sin and god makes a covenant with them and later in hosea chapter 6 verse 7 we see record of Adam having broken that covenant. The word covenant is not used in that first few chapters of Genesis, but God makes a covenant, an arrangement 
with them. God is infinite uh, and must condescend to us, even in our sinlessness in Adam, um, before the fall, by way of covenant. And so God makes a covenant um, with Adam. It is, of course, broken. But then he promises a covenant of grace in Genesis 3.15, which ultimately comes about by the work of the one that is referenced there, the skull-crushing seed of the woman, Jesus Christ. And so between Genesis 3.15 and Jesus in the New Testament talking about instituting a new covenant, a new arrangement where he is the mediator, he sets the terms of the covenant, there are a series of other covenants which point to that covenant that is to come and kind of unfold things, moving us in that direction. So God makes a covenant with Noah, right? God makes a covenant with Abraham. God makes a covenant uh, with his people by way of Moses. We call it the Mosaic covenant. God makes a covenant with David, uh, that he's always going to have a king on his throne. And so from the beginning of the Bible, after the covenant of works is broken, the Bible unfolds in this system of covenants, which ultimately all fall away and land us and Christ, who is the ultimate goal of all of these covenants. So you, you, you see the word covenant a lot in the Bible, but even when you don't see it, you see a structure of Genesis to Revelation kind of unfolding by way of these covenants. That's great. Thank you. The, the other um, early document that we definitely wanted to, to ask about uh, is one that I know Way, way back in the distant past when we used to have Sunday school, <laughs> um, pre-COVID stuff, um, I know you'd mentioned it a, at least a couple times that I can remember, but it's a writing that's called The Shepherd of Hermas. And with something like the Epistle of Barnabas, we, we have a category for that because we've got all Paul's epistles, we've got the general epistles. We know what a gospel is. Revelation is kind of its own thing, but we, you know, if you read a little bit, you know, that's a specific genre of apocalyptic literature. But I guess the first question is, how would you classify or what category would that Shepherd of Hermas fall in? Yeah. And, and you know, noting what kind of genre a literature a piece of literature is, is important, like you mentioned, brother. Um, you know, there may be some debate about even the epistle of Barnabas. Was it a real letter, an epistle, or was it just structured that way? Either way, the form kind of takes on the feel of a letter. But the Shepherd of Hermas is a different kind of uh, work to, altogether. It's a little bit like an apocalyptic work. It has an angelic kind of mediator, if you will, a series of visions um, that occur. But uh, let me just give you a, a little bit of background. Um, there's some uncertainty to when it was written, but Irenaeus mentions it around 175 AD. So that means that it had to be likely a late first century or early second century work. It is uh, not a part of the Christian scriptures, the canon of scripture, although it was one of the few books that didn't make it into the canon that was considered by many in the early church to be scripture. Quite frankly, as someone who preaches through the Bible book by book, I'm quite glad that it didn't make it, aside from it not being being the word of God. If you've never read The Shepherd of Hermas, it is long, it is intricate, it's confusing in certain parts, but basically— Hermas receives these series of visions. Um, Now, my focus in studying it has to do with family and family care and family structures. But within that work, um, there is this call 
uh, to, um, for instance, um, uh, repentance. There's this call to considering um, how to live. Uh, one of one early church uh, scholar and writer on this book, his last name is Verhaden. He says. Um, that the work is, quote, not interested in revealing hidden schemes of the world history or about speculating about the sequence of events announcing the end times. Its message, rather, is about what should be done in the here and now to prepare oneself for the end. At best, this could be described as apocalyptic procedure in action, Mm. but with a clear-cut focus on the present and serving catechetical and pastoral purposes. That's a mouthful, but basically what Mm. he's saying is, it's a little bit like the book of Revelation. Hey, press on. I'm not really telling you how and why all of the end times is going to occur the way that it will, but press on and live uh, in a way that you're prepared as a, as a Christian. And uh, so that's a little bit about that particular work. So it sounds like that one's more, um, more practical wisdom than big picture theological truths. Would that be fair? Yeah, I mean, it's structured with kind of a section of visions and then another section of commandments and then another section of parables, uh, all in one long, quite frankly, really long work. I mean, I've got my copy right here in front of me, and it's the it's the longest uh, work in the Apostolic Fathers, uh, to my knowledge. And there's discussion here. There's symbolism. The church is pictured in certain ways. There's pictures of stones. I mean, all this kind of stuff. It, it really does have the feel of apocalyptic literature, like we might say the book of the Revelation, but with much less Christological focus. Interesting stuff, because I've had this discussion with some folks before, and it seems to be a question that most people don't fully understand. If you could succinctly, and I know this is really hard, probably, <laughs> But could you describe when you talk about a book being canonical, what does that mean? What, uh, why was the Shepherd of Hermas, why did it not meet the requirements to be a canonical book? Yeah. So when we say that a book is canonical, we mean it is in the canon. That word canon just means rule. Um, it is in the recognized list of books that we would consider to be authoritative scripture. Now, when we say we consider it, we don't determine that. We simply receive that. The church recognizes that, right? Um, so it's it's not proper, for, for instance, for someone to say the church uh, determines which books are in and which books are out. It's, it's more proper to say the church recognizes the canon, right? Because ultimately, the church is based on the word of God and, and not the other way around. Um, which was another aspect of truth that was recovered again during the Reformation. But, you know, by the time of Jesus, the Old Testament canon, the books of the Old Testament were clear, they were decided, um, they were recognized. You know, Jesus, as he walked on the earth as the God-man, as he learned scripture as a boy, because he did learn things according to his human nature, the books that he would have learned from would be the same books that we have in our Old Testament. But after the ascension of Christ, the apostles wrote a series of books, and the church began to recognize those books which were inspired of God. And the standard for that was that they were written by an apostle or a close associate of an apostle. Um, 
They were recognized by um, the majority of the known churches, and they didn't contradict any major, they didn't contradict any of the other known books. Mm -hmm. And so that was sort of the, the kind of understood standard. And the first list of the New Testament canon that we have is in the early 300s in a festal letter uh, that we have. Um, but but that's just a record of someone saying, hey, here are the books we're using. Those books were already recognized by the late first century, um, early second century. And so anything that was written by Christians outside of that might have been helpful. It might have been informative, like the two books that I referenced, Barnabas and the Shepherd of Hermas. But ultimately, those were not recognized by the majority of churches and the Spirit of God caused his own word to be recognized into what we consider a collection of Spirit-inspired works. So when we say canonical, we mean scriptural versus non-canonical, meaning non-scriptural. So the epistle, the epistle of Barnabas or the Shepherd of Hermas, helpful, good, some good stuff in there, some wonderful truths, but we don't understand it to be the Spirit-inspired word of God. Would it, it might be the case then that if you look far enough and wide enough, you, you, you could track down some early church father who would have said, yes, the epistle of Barnabas and the shepherd of Hermas should be included. But just because you find one list that includes them, that doesn't necessarily mean that the majority would have. Yeah. Yes. In fact, you might even see lists that are slightly different than our list, like uh, a, a list called the, the Muratorian Canon, um, as it relates to books like The Shepherd of Hermas. But one of the things that's helpful for us to understand is that not only did the Spirit inspire uh, the Word of God as it was written down by, you know, the apostles, he also preserved his Word. And while there may have been some who were using specific works and considering them scriptural, the overwhelming uh, majority of churches uh, and witnesses give us a clear understanding, even in the early period, of what God's Spirit-inspired Word would be. It kind of gets off topic, but where I was going with that is not only did the Spirit inspire His Word, He also preserves His Word. And that's why you only read the King James version, right? Um, so, no, I, I don't just read the King James version, but you're trying to get me to start talking about text criticism, which, you know, I, I love talking about it. Uh, and I think that whole idea of the Lord preserving his word is important for that conversation. We should consult the majority of witnesses and not just one section. But that's a topic for another day. Yes, sir. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Uh, those are very helpful uh, answers to some of our questions. Um, I don't have anything else. You don't have? No, I'm no, for real. Yeah, I'm. I'm. I was woefully unprepared. I, oh no. Yeah. Well. Well, they, I do have other questions I would like yeah, to ask Pastor but Ryan, not on but this not, topic. not on this topic. Right? Well, th or not necessarily. Not necessarily out loud for a podcast either. Right. That's yeah. it. <laughs> um. And th I mean, this very well may be a topic that deserves an entire episode. But when we start talking about um, the church's um, broad recognition of, of books being in included in Scripture, maybe the 800-pound uh, gorilla in the corner is that, uh, that infamous Dan Brown book, ah. right? <laughs> or series of books where 
it seems like it for someone who knows i mean for somebody probably who has only listened to this episode and you give a very brief sketch of the process by which the church recognized those books that would almost be enough by itself for them to pick up that book and say this is just nonsense he's making this up out of fiction but is that do you think that um a misunderstanding of what you just explained is what would lead people into kind of accepting the um, Dan Brown type thesis. Yeah. I mean the Dan Brown, you know, you're referencing, you know, that, that series of books um, and one of, well, two of them was made into, were made into movies, but the, the most famous would be the Da Vinci code, right? Where you have this understanding and it's, you know, Hey, look, it's a, it's an adventure movie, kind of fun movie. Um, mm-hmm. depending on how you look at it, but it's horrible history because right. it sort of, it presents the idea that there was, there were politics and that one group won and, you know, there was shuffling and deciding which books are in and which books are out and we need to hide certain truths. So we can't let these books come in. And just, just if, if any listener were to just pick up a basic church history book, even books that, you know, I might largely disagree with that, that whole idea is just foreign uh, from good history. I mean, basically, you had clear witnesses recognizing churches using in worship services the reading of Scripture. I mean, even in the New Testament, we have Peter um, calling some of Paul's writings Scripture. That's in the New Testament. So the whole idea that people got together and said, well, hey, there's this whole body of letters. We got to pick some of them and we got to be political about it and we got to hide certain things. That's just bad history. It may make a great Hollywood movie, depending on how you look at it, but it's right. just bad history. So for those people interested in the question of canon, I mean, you've got some great uh, books out there. Um, Michael Kruger, for instance, has a great academic work. Uh, on canon, uh, just a basic church history book, maybe Nick Needham's kind of church history volumes. Just look at the first volume on the early church. Um, you know, uh, other kinds of volumes like that would just really give a person a kind of a clear understanding of how scripture came to be recognized uh, for what it truly is. All right. So I did have, I do have two questions that I do want to <laughs> ask. Um, and one is related and the other one is kind of like a final send off kind of question um so the first question is has to do with and, and i believe you've answered this before perhaps i've heard you talk about it elsewhere but i don't think we've ever answered it here for our four listeners um so let's say that uh we were never able to recover any parts of the bible that were or any parts of the manuscripts that were used to translate the bible and all we had were writings from the church fathers uh how much would we be able to compile of of the scriptures from just their writings? Well, my answer is kind of twofold. Number one, that's a hypothetical and it wouldn't happen because the Lord has promised to preserve his word. Um, (laughs) But I do think we, we find some of the secondary preservation of that in the writings of church fathers. Um, You know, without getting into my whole research, I mean, one of the things that I think is fairly clear is that the writers of just some of the books we've mentioned, the Apostolic Fathers, so First Clement, Second Clement, Ignatius, Polycarp, um, the Didache, Shepherd, those kinds of works, there are tons of clear, basically verbatim quotes from the Bible. And, um, you know, even 
even works that might help us to try to think through certain textual variants of debated Bible verses and manuscripts, um, which, you know, that's a topic for another episode, perhaps. But to answer your question, even though it's a hypothetical, there is a lot of witness to the text in the writings of the non-canonical writers. You know, for instance, in the Didache, we see almost verbatim kinds of structures where Paul talks about the household, like we see in the book of Ephesians and Colossians, Mm -hmm. right, where where the household codes are given. So there's a lot of witness there, which helps us to understand that the scripture was spreading and it was spreading quickly at a very early portion in our history. Yeah, that's good. So uh, the Didache affirms the patriarchy. (laughs) That's not what I said. <laughs> I'm, I'm kidding. Um, well, sort of. <laughs> although, although I will say uh, the Didache does have a clear emphasis on husbands shepherding their families. Um, in fact, if you'll just humor me for a moment, uh, because you brought it up. I know you brought it up <laughs> at best, but I mean... You know, in the Didache, we we see this call uh, for um, husbands to, um, you know, basically to teach their sons and daughters the reverential fear of God, encouraging servants to be submissive. Right. Um, So while the whole debate of, you know, uh, male headship and all of that requires more than just a quote from the Didache. There, there is clear evidence, you know, in, in the early apostolic fathers that there was a role uh, for husbands and heads of households to be shepherding their families. Other passages talk about them shepherding their wives, in a sense. And I, yeah. I feel compelled to let the listeners know that this is how Reuben always is. <laughs> he's, not, he's not showing off for company. So if you're, if you're tempted to, to uh, feel bad for our guest, just know that Yes, he's he gets used, it. He's, he's used, used to, to it. it. Absolutely. He's used to it. Actually, I just want to say, Joseph, that I feel like that I'm getting very triggered. This is unfair treatment, uh, <laughs> and I've never experienced this before. <laughs> totally kidding. Totally kidding. Well, that actually leads me to my second question, which actually, when I think about it, when I consider some of the stuff that you've mentioned about the early church, um, the paradigm of the family, and how that's kind of uh, laid out in the early church, you see a lot of things that the Christians are doing that is completely different from society. And whenever you look closely at early the early church, um, and we look around at our modern day society, it seems kind of we we got it. I mean, beyond good. I mean, it's very docile, it's like very peaceful right now compared to the environment in which the early Christians lived. But uh, nevertheless, there are a lot of very real challenges that Christians face today. So from your perspective as a pastor and as a church historian to a degree, what do you see as as the greatest threat to uh, the Christian home right now? And I'll give you a couple of of two like major things that I see that I think a lot of people are kind of got their ears, their their antennas tuned into is uh, postmodernism and and all of its descendants, you know, critical theory and all of its flavors. And then, um, or EFS, right? So you have the Christian home, we're in a secular environment, and we, we, 
we're trying, we are as fathers and as parents, maybe without some homes without fathers, um, parents are doing their best to shepherd their children and to raise them up in the fear and admission of the Lord. But we have critical theory attacking from the secular side. And then we have other types of possibly destructive teachings such as EFS and controversies like that, that are, are getting us from the inside, so to speak. So does that make sense? What I'm asking, like, what's yeah. the, yeah, I mean, I don't. I'm assuming your listeners are familiar with EFS, eternal functional subordination of the sun. Yes, like right. Except, okay. To describe what that is as well. Um, so yeah, so I mean, in short, EFS or ESS, uh, the eternal subordination of the sun, is basically a debate that some evangelicals have kind of drifted into, which argues that even according to his divine nature, in some way, Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, submits to the first person of the Trinity, the Father. And we would argue that um, according to uh, his divine nature, Christ is co-equal and co-eternal with the Father and the Spirit, and that there's not a submission within the Trinity. The only reason that that relates to the family is that some people um, have tried to use that understanding of the Trinity to argue that that's why men and women in relationships of marriage uh, should have some level of headship and submission. And I don't I don't think you have to tinker with the doctrine of God to do that. I think you uh, can just simply say the Bible says that there are uh, roles that uh, a husband and a wife have, and they are complementary. But there is an understanding that ultimately the father, uh, the man is is called to be the one that is accountable to God in a, the greatest degree for uh, for his family and for the shepherding of his family. So, yeah, I mean, I don't know the extent to which I would say EFS uh, is making the family messed up as much as it's a confusion of categories. And in some cases, disastrously so, because it's uh, really a tweaking of the doctrine of God, which is not good. You right. know, to answer your question most directly, I think, I mean, obviously sin <laughs> is the biggest yeah, attack on the family. Satan loves to destroy families. Uh, I do think things like critical theory, uh, feminism, those kinds of things are problems for the family. The sexual revolution, um, the idea that we've made um, having children sort of a burden that, you know, uh, birth control has become such a high thing that, you know, we can have marriage without any kind of prospect of children for those that, you know, could otherwise have them. And so I think there are a lot of issues. But honestly, one of the biggest things that's a challenge for the family today is what was the challenge in the garden. It's husbands who are not taking the responsibility that they have before God seriously and humbly and seeking to take the hits for their family, right? It's one thing for me to say, you know what, boy, Eve had to have that apple. It's another thing for me to say, but I was Adam standing there and I, I let her be deceived by the voice of the enemy. I was not willing to put myself out there and crush the head of the serpent. And of course, we know that Christ does that for us. And so I think we need fathers to be fathers, loving, gentle, listening fathers and loving, gentle, listening husbands who are not domineering, but who say, you know what, I'm going to put myself out there like a warrior for my family. Um, and uh, I'm going to be the one to take the hits and I'm going to be the one to die daily for my wife. Uh, so th- that's, that's, that's probably the biggest thing that I would say. Yeah. Amen, brother. Amen for the patriarchy. I love it. I love it. I, I love how, I love how you try to pigeonhole me into the word patriarchy. You just, Every that's time. like an, obs- that's like an obsession for you, brother. We have to talk about that. Right 
to that one. I said, what is the greatest threat? And you're like, men need to be men. And I'm like, yes, yeah. I got them. It's, it's all right. I edit the episodes. And <laughs> this can say something totally different. Yeah. Um, but I, I think I was just thinking uh, while you're, while you were going through that and answering Urban's question that that just lines up so well with some of the stuff that you went over when you covered some of the family issues in early, in the yeah. early church. We don't have to dive into all that here. We can certainly drop a link to that Sunday school lesson in the show notes page because there's just a, a wealth of information that we would love to dive into, but want to be respectful of everybody's time. But and, so It seems like covenant theology goes all the way back down to the garden. So it seems right? like... Right, that federal mm-hmm. that federal headship. Well, right. I would say I would say for any listener who wants, uh, you know, to think through just going all the way back to the garden, a great book for all of us would be uh, one that was recently published called "Getting the Garden Right" by uh, Barcelos Richard Barcelos. Uh, it's a little bit academic for some, maybe some. I don't know who all your listeners are, but that might be a great way to think about. Just we started talking about covenants and stuff, and yeah. how it starts in the garden. That might be a great place to start. Um, well, I, I think that's, that's all we have and we appreciate the, the conversation, not the interview. It was nice to just, to just talk and let things go where they were flowing. We didn't to open any or leave any loose ends, I think, did we? Uh, not terribly. No, I don't think so. Uh, thank you so much, Pastor Ryan, for, uh, taking the time to, to talk with us and, and we just really appreciate it. Love you so much. And thanks. Thanks for being with us. We really appreciate it. Absolutely, guys. Thanks so much.